Today's research continues to show that science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM fields, are considered masculine, even though there is no evidence to show a difference in aptitude between men and women when it comes to STEM. Why is this? Do women have the skills and aptitude for engineering careers? In other words, can women engineer? The answer is yes, they can. In this episode, we'll talk to Stephanie Slocum, author of She Engineers, a practical guide for women engineers, and get first-hand advice on how to succeed as a woman in engineering fields. Hello, I'm Gabby Coe. I'm a systems engineering fellow at one of the most successful engineering companies in the world. And this is Keys to the Future podcast. I'd like to inspire you to stay focused on your STEM education and career journeys through conversations with my guests. Let's get started. A career in any STEM field can be intimidating, sometimes more so for women. There is a lot to learn and the subject matter can be very challenging for anyone. But if you think about it, STEM is part of our daily lives, whether we realize it or not, and women play an important part in developing engineering and technology solutions. Technology has revolutionized our lives, the way we work, play, and live. Smart devices put information at our fingertips, making our lives easier and more fun. On the business side, technology and innovation are needed to create new products and solutions for problems to improve the world we live in. Technology helps businesses keep up with the fast-paced world by improving efficiency, effectiveness, and competitive advantage. All of these advancements that affect our personal and work lives are due to STEM, and engineers are at the helm. Women bring an important and popular perspective to the world of STEM, yet while women make up half the population, less than 25% of engineers are women. This is according to the 2021 U.S. Census Bureau. Women are the users, developers, testers, and operators of products and tools that we use in our daily lives, whether for work or fun. Without the input of women, development of solutions and products will only address a portion of the issues we face. The diversity of thought that women bring to the engineering is critical to designing and developing new products and solutions. From a personal perspective, as a woman in engineering, I feel I have a responsibility to influence technology of the future so that it benefits all and also be a positive role model for others, both women and men. I also want to be a catalyst and provide an environment for women on my teams to feel empowered to reach their full potential. I recently read the book, She Engineers, authored by an engineer and a strong believer that women have the power to create their own destiny and achieve career and life success as engineers. I'm thrilled that its author is our guest. Let's hear her great tips and advice on how to thrive in engineering fields as a woman. Today's guest is Stephanie Slocum, the founder of Engineers Rising, an organization that helps women engineers be confident and holistically navigate their next career steps. She's an engineer, speaker, mom of three young girls, and author of She Engineers, a practical guide for women engineers by a woman engineer. Welcome to Keys to the Future, and thank you for sharing your perspective with us. Thank you so much for having me, Gabby. Would you mind starting out by telling us a little bit about yourself? I am, as you mentioned, a mom. I have three daughters. I am an engineer, 
And I would describe myself as a wanderer in that if anyone's listening and you're like, okay, I'm not certain of what my career path is going to be. And it feels like this huge decision in my career. I've tried a whole bunch of different things and a lot of them didn't work. Even picking my college major, I changed it three or four times, but always following my interests and my curiosity. And so as I'm describing myself, and I, I hope all the listeners will take away this piece, is that it is okay to not be certain about what you want to do right now. And it's okay to explore and follow your interests and curiosity and passion. And so I've worked for other people. I started my own company four years ago. And throughout all of that, my goal is to give back. I'm very much driven by making a difference in the world. It's the reason I became an engineer. And it's the reason why I've taken every job I've ever had and started, ended up starting my own company. And I want the same for everyone I work with and for all of our listeners today. That is awesome. Uh, you said wanderer, try different things so that you follow your passion and find what you're mm -hmm. good at. You know, as a senior engineer myself, I wish I would have been exposed to your book earlier on in my career. So can you share what inspired you to write your book, She Engineers? I came to a place in my career, and, and maybe some of the listeners are here right now, where I felt stuck. I had a career that on paper looked amazing, and inside, I felt like there has to be more for me. And so enter into this situation. I was driving one of my daughters home from school. She was in second grade at the time. And she was talking about the fact that they were going to do this book writing project in second grade. And so I said to her, I'm like, I always have wanted to write a book. She's like, well, mom, you're always telling us that if you want to do something, the time to start doing it is now. Like you shouldn't wait. You should just go after what you want to do. And I'm sitting there in the driver's seat in my car thinking, <laughs> okay, I am completely getting schooled by my second grader. And so after that, there were a, kind of a series of events. I don't know when I started writing the book that it was going to be like what it was going to end up being. I just felt like I had looked around for resources to help me when I had hit this point of kind of career stagnation in my own career and I didn't find any. And I also at the same time really loved the people part of the field. So I loved mentoring other women, a whole lot of men as well on all the non-technical things that I wished someone had told me that you needed to be successful in an engineering or a technology career. And so all these things kind of happened together and I started writing this book. And so I want to set some context for writing this book because it wasn't like I had a lot of free time to get this done. I was at that point working in a almost executive level position at the employer I was at. I was working a lot of overtime. Uh, my youngest child was not yet two and she was not consistently sleeping through the night either. There were some personal things going on this year that the year I wrote that book and it took about a year to do it as well that, that were going on. But I knew that, you know, if I could get this out there and help at least one other person could be my daughters in the future, if they become engineering STEM or something like that. But I thought, you know, if I could help at least one other person, I have to get this done. I have to get this out into the world because I don't want anyone else to struggle like I did 
and think it's them, that there's something about you as a woman in a male-dominated field that doesn't scream leader, or that I thought a lot of the things I experienced, which I now know is related to bias, was because there was something wrong with me. And I don't want that for anyone else. I love that your daughter really inspired you and really pushed you to go ahead and get started. And right from the start, the book provides direct advice on how to lay the foundation for success with four secrets. And these include know yourself, think positive, prioritize self-care, and you get what you give. Can you expand on these? I'm going to start first with know yourself. What does that actually mean? Because I feel like it can feel like an overused cliche. So this is all about doing some introspective work in combination with being willing to try new things with the goal of knowing what type of lifestyle, what kind of work environment that you will thrive in. And so figuring out what your strengths are, trying enough things so you can hone those strengths looking at, okay, like, what is my personality type? What do I love doing? What do I not love doing? And applying that to your career selection, whether it's your major, or whether it's the types of roles you take, as well as the rest of your life. And so let me give you an example, because I see this all the time in some of the women I coach. Introverts versus extroverts. If you are an introverted type person, that typically means that you are very happy uh, working by yourself. Introverts generally recharge by alone time. Now, I want to contrast that with an extrovert who will tend to recharge by being around people. Now, that does not mean that introverts don't like people. It just means that being around more people is not how introverts tend to recharge. And so when you're looking at potential career paths for you, uh, one of my very first internships was in a lab. And if you have ever been in a lab, it's a lot of kind of quiet, alone time working through processes and procedures and running tests. Even for me as an introvert, that was too much alone time for me. And fortunately, I had an internship early enough to recognize that, okay, any career path where I'm going to be in a lab all the time, that is, that is not for me. And I see this for the extroverted women in STEM specifically, because so many of the STEM jobs are crafted around a more introverted tendency and that you're behind a computer all day. That is a recipe for frustration if you are a natural extrovert. Let's talk next about the thinking positive one. Thinking positive may feel like a cliche, and we are not talking here about putting on rose-colored glasses and seeing the world as unicorns and rainbows, but that's not the type of thinking (laughs) positive we are talking about. Fundamentally, no one wants to work with someone who is constantly complaining, who can point out everything that's going wrong at work or on that student project you're working on, but struggles to solve the problem. And so thinking positive is really about a fundamental mindset about how you react when things happen in your life. Maybe something bad happens. Are you thinking about it from a, I am a victim to what is going on? 
Or are you thinking about it from a, okay, how can I turn what's happening into a gift or opportunity? How can I approach this in a way that moves towards problem solving, moves towards growing myself instead of looking at it as I'm going to blame someone else for what's going on? You want to make sure you are learning and growing. And, and there's a term for this. If you were to go Google growth mindset, that is exactly what I'm talking about here. I recently completed a case study interviews of more than 100 emerging and current women and non-binary leaders and male allies in STEM. One of the things that emerged from there was that all of those senior leaders, every single one of them had a growth mindsets. And so that will serve you well, no matter where you are in your career path. Okay, so we, we did the first two. Now we're on to the third one, which is prioritizing self-care. I think we are aware because of the pandemic and all the things around this, that we need to prioritize self-care in a way that society wasn't aware of at the time I wrote She Engineers. What is important to understand is, particularly in the technology fields, but I'm seeing this across more than just technological fields, is that we have a burnout epidemic. And so the analogy I will use here is that taking your, your career, your life, it is a marathon, it is not a sprint. And if you aren't filling your cup on a daily basis with things that fuel you, with things that allow you to show up as the best version of yourself that you can be, you are leading towards a place where you may run into burnout at, at some point. Uh, let me give you some ex like very specific examples because I'm not necessarily talking about a day at the spa. I'm talking about basic stuff like, are you getting enough sleep at night? Uh, there's a statistic that something like 75% of US-based adults are not getting at least seven hours of sleep at night. How's your hydration? Are you getting enough water? Are you fueling your body with the proper food and, and exercise and all of that? And so just starting with those basics, think to yourself, okay, is there one thing that you can do today or tomorrow that you know will make you feel better? And it doesn't have, a, have to take long. Maybe it's just you're going to bed a little bit earlier so you get all that sleep. Maybe it's reconnecting with someone you've lost touch with that makes you feel good when you talk to them. What are those things for you? Finally, number four is you get what you give. There is a book called Give and Take by Adam Grant, and I cite a piece of that book in She Engineers. And the, the synopsis here is that his research found that those who are givers tend to be both more successful than everyone else and the least successful of everyone else. So what is the difference between those? Because we want everyone to be a giver that is very successful. Uh, the givers that are very successful are also good at setting boundaries. And I saw this in the leadership case study I referenced earlier in our conversation as well, in that many of the women who are now senior leaders in their organizations, uh, that we, I interviewed a number of people who founded their own organizations as well and who are entrepreneurs. They had a common thread around, you know, how they advanced. And they said, you know, I was always looking around in whatever role I was in to see how could I help someone else? What ideas do I have that will make where I'm working better? And that attitude permeated 
everything they did. And so as a result, they became a go-to person in their career for different things that they had strong suits in. And so that's what I mean when I say you get what you give and why giving is important. It's not giving so that you are depleted and drained. It is giving in a way that you are helping other people, but you're also aligning your natural skills, gifts, and talents or your learned skills, gifts, and talents with your organizational roles, what exactly you're helping people with. I want to give a very specific example here as well. I'm going to use myself as an example. So understanding who you are, which was my first, the first one I shared. For me, I am a big picture thinker. What that means is that every role I've ever had that was super operations and detail oriented, I did well because that's the kind of person I am, as I imagine a lot of our listeners are, that we pride ourselves on doing work well, but I didn't thrive when I put myself in a role where I could use those big picture thinking skills, it was then that things really started taking off for me. It's not a matter of giving, giving, giving. It's this alignment that will lead you to success beyond your wildest dreams of what you can imagine right now. I love that advice. Know yourself so that you can figure out what to do and how you can do that in the best capacity. Then you mentioned growth mindset self-care so that you can effectively do what you are setting out to do and then paying it back and forward. I really love that. You also present four tools for becoming a technical expert. You mentioned cross-training, curiosity, ask for help, and obtain certifications. Why do you think these are important to build your technical skills? So I'm going to start with cross-training. All of our work is not done in a bubble. In order for you as an individual to be successful, you need to understand how a particular job fits into the broader picture. And so what cross-training does, what it means is that you have maybe talked to people in different departments and so that you understand what is going on. And it's not just having a technical expertise, it is having a broad understanding of where your technical expertise fits in. Uh, And I'm going to give you a very specific example of why this is really important if you want to be successful. You can go look at CEOs of corporations and you will immediately see that they generally did not come up with only one area of expertise. So if they started on a technical track, typically they don't come all the way up through the technical track. They end up in finances at some point. They end up in sales at some point. They end up in different places in different organizations so that they have this compilation of skill sets that allows them to lead. And in a world where we are becoming more and more and more connected, the most lucrative career paths, as well as what I think are the most fun career paths, are going to be at the intersections of disciplines. Most of us, after we get those degrees, we find that yes, we are using some of what we learned But the most valuable thing we learned were the critical thinking skills required to solve problems. And so how can you take and apply that 
to your role and back to the growth mindset about learning new things. It's through this idea of cross training that you need to be responsible for your growth and development, not just in your technical expertise or the expertise you need for your job, but also understanding where you fit. And let me tell you, this benefits you in everything from salary negotiation to deciding which career paths and which job opportunities you want to pursue. The three other pieces, the four tools for becoming a technical expert besides cross-training, curiosity, ask for help, and obtain certifications. Curiosity, I feel like is generally self-explanatory. It's rare I meet a technical professional who's like, yeah, I'm curious. That's part of what drove me into what's going on. And so thinking through how can you use your curiosity, not just to solve technical problems, but towards helping other people, obtaining the cross-training skills you need to have. And so, So for example, having a simple conversation with your manager where you're like, I want to do this type of technical project. Your manager looks at you and says, well, that's not in your job description. I don't know how we can make that happen. And instead of you like shutting down, you say back to your manager, okay, I hear you, but what are your ideas for how I can get those skills? What are your ideas for how I can get access to a mentor that works on one of these projects? Or who can I talk to who can help me understand what this all would entail? Using your curiosity superpowers and asking questions is one of the most powerful tools you have. And so really leaning into that and using it again for not just technical, but all these non-technical challenges that we see in our fields will help you go very, very far in whatever career path you want to go. Okay. I just touched on ask for help at the same time we were talking (laughs) about curiosity. When we look at what are the most successful people doing to be successful, and I look back on my own journey so far and I ask, okay, where were turning points for me where, you know, if events hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am now. It all comes down to a connection. It all comes down to a mentor that gave the right advice at the right time. It all comes down to someone who I was willing to be vulnerable with and say, hey, I'm out of my comfort zone here. Can you help me? And so give away from this idea that like, yes, you will need to work hard. You'll need to figure things out yourself. But instead of always going and asking, okay, how can I do this myself? I've learned to train myself to first ask who can help me. And so that simple shift of anytime you're asking how, switch over to who and ask that question first, because you will spend a lot less time figuring things out when you have that support system around you. Finally, four tools of becoming a technical expert four was obtain certifications. And I'm going to explain briefly what I mean by this, but I also want to talk about a pitfall that I see a lot of women specifically fall into here. So certifications, if you are in a field that requires a particular certification or there are certifications that you feel will open doors for you in your career, you should pursue those. My background is in bachelor's and master's degrees are in architectural engineering. That field is related to the construction industry. And so having a PE license opens a whole lot of doors. And if you do not have a PE license, you will hit a ceiling very rapidly once you get past the number of years of experience necessary before you can even take that exam. That may not be the case in your particular industry. And so the pitfall 
that I want all of our listeners to avoid is that often I see frustrated women and frustrated men for that matter, deciding that I don't like my current job. I don't like the three organizations I've tried in the industry. And so I'm just going to go back to school and I'm going to go get a master's or a PhD or an MBA or change majors entirely. And I want to implore you to really think hard about decisions related to going back to school. Why? Because I often find it to be the case that the real issue behind why you think you need another certification, another degree has nothing to do with you actually needing it and has everything to do with you feeling deep down that you are not good enough. A lot of times I find in coaching many people in the technical fields that uh, the underlying issue of I don't feel good enough can be solved in other ways and needs to be solved in order to be successful, but that will cost a whole lot less than going back to school. Those are great tools. You mentioned understand your surroundings and where you fit in and are connected to the disciplines intersecting with yours and use your curiosity to help others and be resourceful. As for help, I like to think of engineering as being a team sport. You're not out there by yourself. (laughs) And then the certifications to open up opportunities. You also mentioned that most people need help in the communications department and engineers are no Mm -hmm. different. In order to be leaders in one's field, one has to really be able to communicate well. Can you talk about the three most valuable traits or the MVTs as you refer to them in the book that are needed to be an engineering leader? Those three MVTs are obnoxious listening, positive thinking, and calm in chaos. Obnoxious listening, what is that? Most of us, when we listen, and I am no exception to this, this is a skill that I have been working on forever and will continue to work on probably for the rest of my life. But most of us, when we listen, we listen and we start cherry picking out something someone said with the intent to respond. So someone says something in a conversation we disagree with, we immediately start thinking, what am I going to say? What's my comeback going to be? And we tune out the rest of the conversation. We can also sometimes fail to listen to body language. And so a lot of our communication occurs through body language. It doesn't occur through what we say. As one example of this, if I say, have a nice day, that sounds completely different than if I say, have a nice day. And so Mm -hmm. I communicated a lot with the exact same words through the tone of my voice. And if you could see my body language, you would see that body language completely shifted between when I said both of those things. Obnoxious listening, again, is listening so that you understand where the other person is coming from instead of listening so you can figure out what to say next. Okay, so we're running through these three MVTs. Obnoxious listening is number one. Talk about positive thinking. When you think for yourself, leaders you've had, you come in contact with, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was a manager. But if you think about those people in your life that you're like, yes, those people have leadership skills. I want you to think about how they approach a problem. When something goes bad, do they sit there and point fingers and blame and make people feel guilty? No. If they are a true leader, they're looking at it from, okay, here is this problem. 
let's try and solve it. That mindset that I talked about earlier about growth mindset has to happen at an individual level before that person is able to lead a team. And so what I mean by that is working on yourself, no matter where you are in your career path right now, so that when those leadership opportunities appear for you, and they appear at all levels in your career, it's not at all, you know, you have to work for 20 years, and then your first leadership opportunity appears. Work on yourself first, and those leadership opportunities will come much faster. The third MVT, calm in chaos. That means that when bad things happen, when you make a mistake, when you get negative feedback, someone makes a sexist or racist comment, everybody listening can imagine a whole number of conflict situations they have been in where they may have struggled to show up as the person you wanted to be in that moment. I am certainly no exception to that. But when we look at leaders, what we realize is the ability to stay calm, to keep your head about you when you encounter challenges is a critical leadership skill that differentiates everyone. But I, I want to say it's even more critical for women. Why? Because there are so many stereotypes in the world that tell us that, oh, well, women are automatically, just because of their gender, more emotional than men. And so for women, if you go up and into a leadership position, and some of you, if you're a student now, may even hear language like this in school, being able to kind of hold your own and stay calm and not take it personally is a critical skill that you need to develop. And need to develop is super key here. I want to share a story about this from my very first job. I was sitting in a lunch and learn where there were 12 owners of a firm and four of them, I think, were giving a panel discussion. And at the end, there was question and answers. And one of uh, the women in the back of the room raises her hand and she says, all these panelists and all these 12 people who are owners of the firm and not one woman, what's going on here? And the panelists kind of look at each other. And one of one of the guys is like, okay, I'll, I'll take this one. And his comment was that, well, we did have a female owner, but she decided she wanted to spend time with her family. So she's not here anymore. And for all you women out there, that means that at some point you are going to have to choose. You're going to have to decide whether you want a career or whether you want a family. And so I heard this and I ran out of the back of the room as tears are streaming down my face. And I ran to the bathroom and I locked myself in a bathroom stall and I just sat there crying. And eventually I kind of composed myself and went, went back out. But I wanted to share that story because I did not have this particular skill. I had to work on it. Actually, this is one of the biggest things I teach people now is how to do this. Because when I fast forward about 10 years, I can point to a second situation where I literally had somebody reaming me out in front of our team. We were on a phone call with a client. During that call, he literally told me, well, you know, you're not very good at your job. We really need somebody else on this project. I use these skills I'm talking about to problem solve, to come to a, a point of where we could find a solution. And at the end of the call, we all hang up and immediately, like I literally put down the phone and ring, ring, ring. Okay. So I pick it up and it is the client. He says, I have never heard 
anyone handle that level of yelling and disrespectfulness and general conflict better than you. And it's caused me to raise my respect for you and how you can handle things. Uh, Oh, and by the way, if this is the kind of person that your firm typically employs, we would love to continue working with you in the future. And so I say that to emphasize that this skill can be learned. If you are not there yet, it's okay. You can learn it. But this calming chaos piece, I think, is the missing link for many, many professionals. Because if you cannot stay calm when you get bad feedback, if you can't stay calm when someone makes a comment, if you can't stay calm when you make a mistake, you won't be able to learn any further skills that you need in order to grow. And so I see that as the primary for what MVT, most valuable trait, do you need to be an excellent engineering leader? I love those most valuable traits, MBTs. Obnoxious listening is really not letting your emotions play into it so that you understand others' points of view. Then you mentioned positive thinking goes back to having that growth mindset. I love the calm and chaos, which, you know, to act with a clear mind. And by the way, you did not see my jaw drop when you were describing (laughs) your example. Your book reveals that the typical person spends 25% of communication time writing, 30% speaking, and 45% listening. What is some practical advice on the importance of all of these forms of communication, written, verbal, and nonverbal? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we can look at the engineering stereotype in particular that engineers can't communicate. (laughs) Um, And I'm here to tell you that that is absolutely true for some people. And that is absolutely not true for other people. Like any other field, we have great communicators and we have poor communicators. And so I think the first piece of advice I would give here, and I'm going to give you two, is that given the pandemic and the amount of remote work going on, I fully expect to continue either lots of remote work or like the hybrid environment. I have seen a significant increase in the amount of written communication. I can't see anyone, but if I said, raise your hand if you're getting too many emails, you would see like I'd be trying to raise two hands and both of my feet in answer to that question. And so I think the importance of written communication has actually gone up since I wrote She Engineers. And so it's important to be aware of this in that if you are struggling to communicate effectively via email, so simple example, are all of your emails, do you have a very clear action item as the line before your sign off so that whoever's receiving it knows exactly what they need to do with your email, things like that. If you aren't super clear in your communication there, you're not only going to have more emails in your inbox, people are going to struggle to understand what you're talking about. And usually if people are struggling to understand, unless it's like a critical situation, they're just not going to answer your email or they're going to guess and then they're going to be wrong. And then you're going to have to send a whole bunch of other emails back and forth. And so that's one piece here is to practically right now, growing some of your written communication skills will pay off for most technical professionals in spades. And then the second piece of this, which goes right along with this, is no matter how you're communicating, and we touched on this when we were talking about listening to understand versus listening to rebut. No matter how you're communicating, putting yourselves in your audience's shoes. And so it's imperative upon you as a communicator to figure out, okay, how can I say this message in whatever form in a way that the other person will get it? 
that the other person will understand. And so very practical example here. Let's say you are a young professional starting out in your job and you are super comfortable with texting. Texting has existed as long as you can remember. I'm old enough to remember when that wasn't, wasn't the case. And you have a manager and you're like, okay, well, my manager's not in the office. I'm just going to shoot them off a bunch of texts asking questions about this project I'm working on because they're, they're traveling or something like that. And I post you the question, if your manager has never once sent you a text, if your manager is constantly communicating via email, why would you think that they want to be communicated with in a different way unless you've had a conversation about it? Uh, but so often we think about, okay, as I'm communicating, I'm going to communicate what's most convenient for me versus let me put myself in the other person's shoes and think about what I need to communicate from their perspective. Those are two very practical ways to make sure that your communication is landing. So we've all experienced those office meetings where people shout, they cut each other off or put blame on others. The example that you provided earlier was a good one as well. And I find these types of meetings so demoralizing and ineffective. What is some advice on how to effectively run a meeting, even if you're the only woman in the room? Oh, Gabby, I imagine we could exchange some stories on this one, couldn't mm -hmm. we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. So if you are running the meeting, first, congratulations that you are running the meeting. You have a huge opportunity here because if you are running the meeting, that means you get to set the tone. So besides the kind of obvious things, I would never attend a meeting without an agenda, for example. So we're going to send those out. But starting out at the beginning of the meeting by verbally framing what is going on. And so what do I mean by that? I could start out the meeting saying, you know, we're going by the agenda. Here's what we're trying to accomplish today. And I'm running the meeting, but I'm also acting as a meeting facilitator in that I want to make sure we hear from everyone. And as the facilitator of this meeting, I will interrupt someone else if it feels like we're getting off the rails or we're you know, moving away from problem solving into blaming and shaming. When you set that tone at the beginning of the meeting, first of all, people are on alert that, oh, wait a minute, she's just said that my uh, previous behavior is not going to be okay. This can be particularly effective, not just for shouting, finger pointing, that sort of thing, but also if the discussion just takes a complete left turn and now you're talking about something that wasn't even on the agenda. Framing it in this way really keeps the meeting on track. Starting it out that way, I think, is a, a critical piece that that a lot of not just women, but engineering managers in general or whoever's leading the meeting. Like you can even do this if you're in a student group and you're doing a class project. I have a couple other kind of thoughts towards this. So I'll give you one, which is what I call popcorning. In most of our meetings, we have one, two, three people that would typically dominate the meeting. So one, two, three people who are talking all the time. And then you have some people who, for whatever reason, you feel like you never hear from them. And so if you popcorn as the person leading the meeting, what you do is you say, here's the problem. I'm going to pose this to the room. And this is really effective in small group meetings. You can say, I'm going to pose this problem. And what we're going to do is popcorn responses in that I'm going to pick somebody. I want to hear their solution to the problem. I don't want anyone else to rebut or judge or say anything about what this person says other than processing until we've gone to everybody else in the room and everyone's gotten to say their ideas. Uh, this is a really effective brainstorm technique as well. And then so I might popcorn to Tom. Tom's job after he goes is to say, okay, uh, Sarah, you're next. 
and you go around the room until everyone's spoken. And then after you've done that, now you can evaluate all those ideas. The person leading the meeting, you have a huge opportunity to set the tone. And I encourage everyone listening who's running a meeting to do that. Excellent tips. In chapter seven, you wrote that this chapter was both the hardest and easiest for you to write. Easy because you've lived many of the challenges during your career and hardest because you felt vulnerable. You get very specific on research that indicates that bias is very real and I couldn't agree with you more. So what are some tools that you can use to stop this bias in its tracks while remaining true to ourselves? I go over a number of tools in the book, but I want to just focus on a couple that are very, very actionable for anyone listening, no matter if the bias is gender or race or age or marital status or children or whatever that bias is. How you decide which tool to use is going to be based on your ability to read the room and know your audience. And so in some cases, calling it out is a great path to go to. Oh, I'll give you an example. I have a colleague I'm working with who is a Latina. And we were talking about the fact that, so your viewers cannot see me. I am a white woman. I'm aware of the privilege that comes with that. And so I have never once had someone ask me, no, where are you really from? When, when I met them, the woman I was talking to was like, yeah, that happens all the time. And she's like, and sometimes I really just struggle to answer this question because even if that is not a biased question, it is complicated for her. And so in some cases, if I had said that to her, I would hope that she would just call me out on it and say, hey, that is a really biased statement. Don't say that. But that works with someone you trust and you've built some of that kind of rapport with. What about in other circumstances? Throughout my engineering career, particularly at the lower levels, I found humor to be one of the most, if not the most effective method of dealing with this. An example from, I think this happened about six years ago, is that I'm in a very large group meeting where we had about 60 people in the room and we all broke up into groups of six or seven to brainstorm and problem solve. And I break up into this group and one of the guys said, Stephanie, how about you take the notes for our group? Now, if you aren't aware of this statistic, women are much more likely to get asked to do what we call office housework, which are non-promotable tasks, typically administrative, related to, let's say, taking notes. Oh, grab a card for someone's birthday, play in the office party, that sort of thing. And so when he asked me this question, I looked at him and I started laughing and he's like, what's so funny? I said, surely you didn't just mean to ask the only woman in the group to take the notes. And he looks at me and he starts laughing. He's like, what was I thinking? I'll take the notes. And so that is one example of many I have that diffusing it with humor can be super helpful. Finally, I want to give one more thing you can do. We're going to go back to using that curiosity. When a comment is made and you're thinking to yourself, is that a biased comment? I mean, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not, but you can say something to the effect of, hmm, it's interesting you say that. What makes you say that? And then just be quiet and hear what they have to say. I've worked with a lot of people who I can say, I think, are very well-intentioned, good people, great engineers. I was happy to work with them. Yet, as humans, we still all have this bias that allows us to make snap judgments. And so what I found is that when you turn around a statement like that and say, you know, what makes you say that? Often, 
the people that said it will self-monitor what they said. They will realize that was a biased comment and they will apologize and move on. Now, if that doesn't work, think of this as your opportunity to practice your conflict management skills is a critical leadership skill set, that common chaos. And so for those people, sometimes just saying this is not okay, setting that firm boundary is a piece of it. And other times it's, again, coming back with questions about this. And then again, you just be quiet until they supply that. And that will help you get out of that kind of biased feedback situation. You end the book with a chapter on work and life balance as a women engineer. We all need that to be effective in all the roles that we play. What is some advice you'd like to give the audience on how to strive to find that balance and have a fulfilled career and family life? I would say that the biggest thing to start with is that you can have a technical career in a family and you can be very, very successful. I would say there's still a lot of, I think, things I have heard out there about, oh, you can't have it all or you can have it all, just not at the same time. And I think when we hear that in a lot of times for women, particularly, we internalize that. And we say to ourselves, well, you know, I'm not going to go for that leadership role because I have two little kids at home and and I want to spend more time in our family. Like we make that unconscious decision for ourselves. Lots of times we don't even let other people make it for us. But when we're talking about that sort of balance, I think getting really good at setting boundaries is super critical here. So for example, the last engineering job I had where I was working for someone else and not myself, I had very, very firm boundaries around dinner time. You know, I will come in early. I will go back to work at home after the kids are in bed, but I'm not scheduling meetings. I'm not taking any calls. I am not doing any of that stuff between five and eight o'clock at night, eight o'clock is my children's bedtime. And along those same lines, I think the partner you choose, if you choose to have a long-term partner, is critically important here because I have watched and seen female coworkers, for example, who when they decided to have a family, they had kids and it was the case that their partner felt that they should be the one, always be the one, taking care of doctor's appointments, taking care of all the kids' activities, taking care of everything related to managing the household. And those partners weren't doing their share. Having that conversation up front about here here are expectations on equal contributions, I think is super critical on the family side. But I also want to touch for a moment on work-life balance What I've found in coaching people through burnout was really around connecting with your why in that when you are doing work that you enjoy with people that you enjoy and you are prioritizing self-care like we talked about earlier, then you find yourself in a place where you're not tracking work-life balance by number of hours you're working. You're not looking at a timesheet and resenting all those hours spent at your employer. And so I think the thing to start with for work-life balance is looking at, are the areas of my life, do I feel fulfilled? As an entrepreneur, I've had my own business for four years and I suspect I'm working more hours as an entrepreneur than I ever did as an employee. Starting a business is hard and it's super, super fulfilling, at least for me. Yet, I have not run into burnout once and I have run into it three times while working for someone else. 
And a lot of it is, at least for me, that in my role where I am in charge and I'm running my own company, I have complete autonomy to decide what my schedule is. And I don't have this kind of like emotional guilt over making those decisions. And so I want for everyone listening to realize first, do not let anyone tell you that you cannot have what you want or you can't have what you want right now. Even on the organizational side, we are seeing so many organizations prioritize mental health, prioritize wellness. If your particular organization is not doing that, vote with your feet. There are organizations that prioritize this. That's excellent input. Do you have any closing words of wisdom you'd like to leave our audience with? My closing words of advice for our listeners today is that you are enough. You can always grow. You can always learn. But right now, wherever you are, you, if you continue to develop yourself, if you develop this growth mindset, you work on some of these skills, the sky is the limit for where you can go. And I encourage you to dream big dreams. What I encourage all the listeners to do is to think to yourself, okay, what is one big thing that I really want to do? And then after you think of that thing, think of what is one thing you can do today that moves you one tiny step closer to achieving that big dream. You do that day after day after day, and maybe you'll be a book author. Maybe you'll start your own business. Maybe you will invent a cure for cancer or send a rocket to the moon. The sky is the limit for you. And do not let anyone else tell you that you can't do it because you can. And it's when you hear that, it's that other person's failure of imagination that they're projecting on you. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Thank you so much for having me, Gabby. In closing, keep reaching for the stars and surround yourself with those who inspire you and fuel you with the encouragement and accountability you need to continue your journey. Thanks to my guest, Stephanie Slocum. Thanks to Kurt Krauss for graphics design. Thanks to Roger Coe for endless reviews and encouragement. And thanks to Joe, always. Keys to the Future podcast is available anywhere you get your podcast. You can follow Keys to the Future on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. I'm Gabby Coe, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Keys to the Future. 